when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, let us make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, to Jehovah. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then over to the statement of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Beginning with verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commands. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I want you to try to imagine this morning that we're having a wedding take place here today. If we have married couples, you might want to reimagine your wedding celebration. Envision that the wife, the bride, is the one who first takes her vows, and she chooses the traditional vows. And she says something like this, uh, I, well, I'll pick on John, Sessy, take you, John. To be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. And she has known that John, being the creative type, wants to write his own vows, but hasn't heard them. And so he stands to do his vow. I take the person I want you to become as my wedded wife. You are not as efficient as I have always wanted in a wife. You don't quite look the way I've envisioned my wife looking. You don't cook as I and my mother 
Uh, no, my wife ought to cook, but I see potential in you. Therefore, I take you today for what I think I might help you become. And I pledge to do all I can do to change you into what I want you to be till death do us part. Now, women who are here, what would you think of that? Uh, Chris heard this yesterday, and she said, I think that would be the moment that death would do us part. <laughs> Why? Because it really is offensive, isn't it? It really is rejecting the other person as that person is. It's, it's entering, yes, I guess, into a relationship, but not with that person as that person is, but as we sort of have envisioned or imagined a person to be. And it's rude. It's belittling. I can't imagine us doing a thing like that. And yet the point I'm going to be trying to make today is that that is exactly what we often do in our relationship to God. And if it's belittling to us, you can imagine that we, when we don't come to know God as he is and as he has said that he is and try to recreate him into what we want him to be, that this is an offense to God. And if I'm right and God's word is speaking clearly when it says that the Ten Commandments are given to us so that it would go well with us, so that you and I will live well and prosper, then not only is God belittled when we do this, but we ourselves don't live well when we don't learn God as he reveals himself to be. And I have come to see that this is exactly what the second command is all about. Now, if you have an outline in front of you, you'll see I thought I should start with investigating the meaning of this second command and mostly probing the difference between the first command in Deuteronomy 5.7 and the second command in Deuteronomy 5.8. If you have your Bibles, look at those again. Verse 7, command 1, you shall have no other gods before me. And then command 2, at least as I see it, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in all creation. Now, no other gods, no idols. Now, I know it's nine o'clock, but is that one command or two? And if it is two, what's the difference? Now, I thought I'd put it up early because I know some people don't like history, but, but, but I do. So maybe you'll stick with me for a few moments here at the beginning. Do you know that there's been a long history or a tradition of people saying that that really is one command because people couldn't figure out what the difference was. Some Jewish rabbis said that it was one command. And what they did, if you have your Bibles, they made verse six into the first command, which called us to have faith in Jehovah. And then verses seven through ten formed one command, put nothing in the place of God. And if any of you, and I'm guessing we have quite a few here, have grown up in a Roman Catholic tradition, from the time of St. Augustine on, they have often reckoned verses 7 through 10 as one, I see some of you nodding, as one command. But then, how do you keep from having only nine commandments? What happens is, if you look down at verse 21, the Catholic Church sometimes has divided that, what I call the tenth command, about not coveting into two different commands. One telling us not to covet our neighbor's property, 
and the other one not to covet our neighbor's wife. Now, I'll tell you, if the reason why I think we have two commands is this. First of all, if you look at verse 6, you'll see that there's no command there. There's no imperative. It just tells us what God has done. So I, I don't see how that could be a command. And this notion of separating that tenth command into two separate, it might work in the book of Deuteronomy. But it won't work the other place where the Ten Commandments are given in the book of Exodus because there, and I hate to say this, but wives are put in, in the middle of everything. So you can't really separate it out. Now, if we're going to have Ten Commands, I think what we have from verses 7 through 10 are two separate commands. And now we have to figure out what's the difference. What's the difference? If the first command is don't put anything in the place of God. We talked about that last week, and all of us understand how we can do that. Having other things to become more important than God is in our lives. Then what is this second command all about? About not making anything for yourself to be an idol uh, in all of creation. Well, I think that there is a big difference. And, and, and my goal is to speak clearly enough that I can explain it to you. Now, that's why I read this Deuteronomy 32 text. Back in that text, uh, the people had been rescued from Egypt. Um, uh, Moses had gone back up onto Sinai, but he'd been away for 32 days. And any of you who've been in leadership positions, you can understand what happens. The people became restless. Are any of you restless with this um, cold that's going around? Your, your pastor is. But anyway, the people had become restless. And you can almost imagine what happened. Uh, people in the leadership role, you've been there. They said, okay, you're the interim leader now. And even though they say you are the leader, really what they want you to do is take their leadership. So, so exert some leadership here, here Aaron. Uh, we know that this fellow Moses, we don't even know where he's gone. But you are the one now, the leader. So do something. We're, we're bored out here in the desert. Now, this never happens uh, at Lake Avenue Church with the senior pastor I know. Where you say, okay, now you've got to do something because we, we want you to do it. Right? That wouldn't happen here. But all of us can imagine this happening, right? And so Aaron decides, what should I do? Here's what I'll do. I'll ask all the people to bring their gold earrings. I'll melt them down. And he must have had some gifts of making things. He formed it into a calf. And then what was declared was this. I know some of the versions put it in the plural, gods. But what is declared is this. This, O Israel, this is your God, the one who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, I want you to notice that he wasn't telling them to worship other gods. He wasn't making a separate God to a God like Baal or an asterisk pole. In fact, the people, when they celebrated, praised Jehovah what he was doing was not telling them that they should worship other gods, but he had come up with a visual representation and said, this is the God of the Bible. And in that, you see the difference between the first and the second command. The first command is what I talked about last week, where it's our human tendency to put other things, sometimes very good things, into the place of God. But in this one, it's still saying that we worship the God of the Bible but we make him as we want him to be. Now, if I can explain it, the first commandment has to do with our hearts. I refer to it as a sin of undisciplined affection. We, we put something else to become the first love of our lives rather than God. 
But the second one is the sin of our minds. It's a sin of undisciplined religious imagination. If I could restate it, it would be this. It would say, folks here at Lake Avenue Church, do not make me to be something that I am not. When you come in, let me reveal myself as I am and don't simply worship me as you want me to be. In fact, if you look back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the very first time that God had ever met Jehovah um, at that burning bush in Exodus 3, 14, Moses said, but when I go back to my people and try to deliver them, who should I say has sent me? And do you know what God said? This is what you should say. I am who I am. That's what you have to tell them. I am has sent me to you. All right. So the principle is this. When we come to church, we must learn to worship God as he reveals himself to be. Not some notion of a God that we want to make him to be. And I've tried to put together a little formula that might help us walk through this and see our vulnerability just a little bit. First, God is, similar to that marriage illustration, the person that we enter into a relationship already is. And God is, too. God is as he is. He's not going to be reshaped by any of us. Three, God is not us. Oh, it's nine o'clock. There should have been some hallelujahs. We would, we would be terrible gods. Four. God is not what we make him to be. Nor often is he what we really want him to be. Five. God alone, being the kind of God the Bible says that God is. God alone can tell us what he is like. And then six, when we gather at a worship service to do what we do to the glory of God alone, God is to be worshipped as he is. You see, those who break the second commandment, in many ways I think we're more vulnerable than many. Those who break this second commandment say, we say, of course we're worshipping the God of the Bible. But what we do is we continue to refashion God as we want him to be. Now I need to stop for just a moment. I guess particularly here in Southern California and uh, maybe on Oscars Day to think about art just a little bit. If you, if you read the worship folder, I, I mentioned there that my son is an art major. And when he was here last week and, and heard I was doing the second command today, he said, oh, dad, is that going to be your anti-artist sermon? I don't think I'm coming. Um, well, I think it's already clear to you that I think this matter of pictures or portraits is not the central thing that this command is all about. This matter of finding ways to try to depict aspects of God, or especially to use art or music to point us to God, is not what the second command is writing against. But I I do want to say that that for artists, you have to be aware about this just as much as everybody else. And, And I see a couple of reasons. One, because any time we try to depict God visually... Uh, we make him less than he is. Uh, e- even a portrait or a picture of us as a human being, it's always limiting, isn't it? It's always just one perspective taken at one moment in time. 
So a picture never captures even all that a human being is. Surely it doesn't capture all that God is. As an artist friend once said to me, how would I paint God? Would I, would I paint him smiling or stern? Just, holy, or loving? Somehow transcendent and beyond uh, time and space or imminent and involved in time and space? And what is our answer? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. God is all of that. So I would simply want to say that any time whether visually or even through my words, we try to say this is what God is. We have a tendency toward limiting him. Second, historically, people have had a tendency to begin worshiping things that should only point us to God. You know that's true, don't you? That, that many well-meaning artists have made statues or sometimes icons or done things to point people to God. But what has happened is, instead of those things simply pointing to one greater than themselves, people have started actually worshipping them and thinking that they are sacred. History has been, has been filled with this sort of thing. And what God says is, that reduces me, but it also hurts that person because they start thinking of me as somebody that you get at through sort of magic charms. Instead of coming and learning about my greatness and that they can know me as, as Father. I've tried to think of an illustration. I can't think of a good one, so I'll give you a bad one. Uh, can you imagine a mother with a brand new baby uh, pushing a stroller down the street? And you walk up and you look in that stroller, as we so often do, and you say something like, wow, that is a beautiful baby. And the mother says, oh, that's nothing. You should see her picture. Can you imagine that? That's not going to happen. Well, in many ways, that's what sometimes in Christian history and tradition people have done. Substituted a picture of God for the real thing. And made it so that people's affection have often been toward those visual things rather than to God. But, all right, artists, I don't know if any of you have left. Uh, I have hope for you. I have hope for you. You know, art and, and music... Uh, has a tremendous capability that many times I struggle with even as your pastor and as your preacher. Art has this ability to point us to the wonder of the greatness of God in ways that sometimes sheer words cannot. Isn't that true? Uh, it can point us beyond itself to, to the wonder of the, how a God can be both just but also loving can hate evil, but offer forgiveness to those who respond to him. It can do that. It's similar to when I would go sometimes in Europe into those great Gothic cathedrals. And I could just see what the architect was trying to do. Trying to say, as you look at those, those, those cathedrals that are pointing upwards, nothing in this building can capture God, is what I always sensed. All that I can do is point you in his direction and help you to get a sense of his greatness and his majesty. I will just say to musicians and artists, if that gift that God has given us can point toward the greatness of God, we will not go far wrong. And I think he will be pleased. So there's my word about art today. So the first and second command, you see the difference. The one is having other gods, other things in the place of God. And the second is saying, no, I believe in the God of the Bible. But what we do is re-recreate him in our image. Which brings me to the second point. I've called it the tug. 
I didn't know what else to call it. Because I find that there is a tug inside of us to break this second command. I've called it the good and the bad about our human inclination to break the second command. And if you look at this phrase uh, that you find there, do not make, I've broken it up a little bit, do not make, but then the next phrase, for yourself an idol. Now, this notion that we have the ability to make things is one of the beautiful things about being a human being. Uh, when, when we're first introduced to God in Genesis chapter 1, what is he doing? He, he's making. He, he is creating. I love to read it. It's even put in poetic fashion. It, 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 it inspires me every time I read Genesis chapter 1. It is so powerful. It is so beautiful. And then God makes us in his image. There's something about us that is sacred. And one of those things, I think it's just one of the parts, is that he's given us the ability to make, uh, to be creative. And when we're engaged in it, we can, uh, uh, we can feel the pleasure of God. So on one side, what is happening here is there's something beautiful about being human. We have the ability to make. But just like every other part of us, we can misuse a gift. And what we should not do is this, make for ourselves an idol. Make for ourselves an idol. Now, as we go through this Ten Commandments series, one of the things that you're going to notice is that none of them are easy to obey. Something, something's gone wrong with us. So that when we look and see how we're created to live, we always have these tugs against living that way. Though when we do, we all know it's beautiful. This is the way it's supposed to be. And in the second one, I found it this way too. So many times when we come and we read what God is like, we sometimes start to think, I hope not. And we begin to want to have, as I see so much in 21st century Christianity, a God that we can control. A God that I can get to do what I want him to do. How do I tap into that? If I show up or if I hold my hands in the right way, I can become his Lord rather than me being uh, uh, letting him be my Lord. Again, a story that might help. A story of a little boy in the first grade. Uh, he's drawing pictures. Uh, the teacher comes up and says, Johnny, uh, what is that you're drawing? Oh, he says, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, Johnny, that's silly. Nobody knows what God looks like. Oh, they will when I'm finished with my picture, he says to her. That's a, sort of a silly little illustration. Certainly very innocent. But I want you to consider this, a true story. When I was doing my doctoral work in theology, we were studying the book of Romans. And you come to this section with righteousness, the right ways of God are being made known. And that God has declared that his wrath will be poured out against evil in this world. That evil will be punished and goodness will be rewarded. And I remember one of the women students, a pastor, said, Oh, my God would never do such a thing. My God would never do such a thing. I remember that just kind of hit me square between the eyes. And I had to say, well, I suppose he wouldn't. But her God is not the God who has revealed himself as he is. Her God 
was one who was breaking this second commandment. She was making God as she wanted him to be. Oh, she claimed to be a Christian. She was a pastor of a Christian church. But she was creating God according to her own religious imagination. When I saw that, sort of called that out, some said, well, what's wrong with that? We all have our right to our own religious viewpoints. What do you, that is the spirit of our age, isn't it? And what God's word is doing, it's so countercultural, is saying, absolutely not. I am as I am. And for you to try to remake me is similar to a husband saying to a wife, I take you not as you are, but as I want you to be. Now, C.S. Lewis has written about this a number of times. I don't know if you read the screw tape letters written so long ago, and yet they, they seem to me as if they are written today. They are written as a junior demon is trying to tempt somebody away from the ways of God and trying to find all sorts of ways. And there's sort of a senior demon mentor who tries to help him out when he has trouble. And he talks about this. He said, one of the ways is you can just confuse people, confuse people by the use even of these personal possessive pronouns, uh, making them think my means something that it doesn't. And so those of you who love grammar, you'll love this statement from Lewis. The rest of it, I'll have to explain it. Okay. Uh, He says, the senior mentor, you know, we produce a human sense of ownership, not only by pride, but sometimes by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my master, and eventually to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, to the my of ownership. Do you see what he's getting at? There are several ways we can use the idea of my. My shoes. They belong to me. But when you read Thomas, after seeing the resurrection, saying, my Lord and my God, what he is doing is falling down before the one to whom he belongs. My shoes or my boots means that I own them. My God means that he has purchased me at a price. My shoes means that I use them. My God means that I put myself at his disposal. And what the second command is saying is, don't confuse these two senses of the word my. When you say my God, we fall before him and say, Father, teach us who you are that I may follow. But we have a strong tug not to do so. Which brings me to the third point. You've already learned a lot about me. Uh, And you know that sometimes I think, all right, does this say anything to us as a church? And I've called it the reflection. Uh, Maybe you don't want me to do this, but I'll probably do it every time. I call it your pastor probes into our vulnerability. You know, it's so easy to apply this to other people. But, But I think we need to think about it with regard to ourselves. It's clear to me that that you don't have to be an anti-Christian to break this command. You just have to become a more and more self-opinionated Christian. Uh, One who claims to be a Christian, but whose idea of God doesn't come out of what God has said about himself, but out of our imagination. Now, I think that the Spirit of God can open our eyes and hearts to see places where we have tried to make God as we want him to be in ways that I never could know. 
that I've thought of several ways that at least maybe I just feel vulnerable in these areas or at these times. Times where there are tough times happening, times where we struggle and we just hope God will be different from what he says he is. I've jotted down a few. I, I think sometimes we're vulnerable in times of temptation. Where there's a way that we know God would have us to live. And yet we just don't want to live that way. It doesn't seem like if we do it his way, it's going to work out. Or it certainly won't be as much fun. Do you know what I'm thinking of? And then this tendency to start reshaping God. God is way too big. My God is way too big and transcendent to care about individual thoughts or moral actions. God couldn't be like that. Even though the Bible tells us that he has the very number of our hairs numbered. Isn't there a tendency to try to reshape him? He couldn't care about this moral choice. He's too big. Or second way I've thought of, sometimes in times of need or want, well, God wouldn't want me to wait. He would want me to be more successful right now, wouldn't he? My God couldn't be interested in a time that I would have to go through of unemployment or a failure to get promotion because God has made me to be happy and happy right now. And yes, he has made us to be happy and he's given us commands so that we can live well. We know that. But we also know that there are times, even as Jesus walked through hardships, that in this world he he allows us to and calls us to. It's a reshaping of God to be different from what he says he is. Or, Or Similarly, and I think this is the hardest time, in times of pain, where we just can't understand it. My God couldn't possibly be allowing the things to happen that are happening. Well, there are things he gives us, prayer, faith, community to join with us, the anointing with oil in times of suffering and pain where we stand together and ask to see the deliverance and the freedom of God, and he provides it. But there are moments that we walk through those times where, as Paul would talk about it, there is a thorn in the flesh where we can glorify God for a season in a different way. Or or maybe the one that could hit us on a Sunday morning I've wondered sometimes if we don't try to reshape God sometimes when we worship together. Uh, My God would surely want me to experience joy in his house, not conviction. Uh, Surely that I don't even feel like I'm worshiping unless I feel. And you see what's happened. We've turned worship from being something that is focused toward God, toward ourselves. That it's, it's all about me and about not about me coming. And seeing God as he is. And sometimes it is painful and we fall on our knees as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. I just want to tell us here at Lake Avenue Church, God is. He has told us he wants to make himself known as he said to Jeremiah. You will seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. But the God whom we will meet is good. That he may be different from the one we would want to fashion. In fact, that's what he says in this Ten Commandments. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And by that he is saying, I am who I am. And I am jealous about you worshiping me as I am. Not some other God of your imagination. He is holy. He punishes sin. But I'll tell you, hallelujah. He is loving. 
He shows love to thousands of generations, to those who turn to him. And he will do it this morning if we turn to him. Which brings me to my last point. I've just called it the challenges. Something to resist. Something I'm longing as your pastor for you to pursue. You shall not make for yourself an idol. I just want us to be on our guard. To be on our guard. That I think it is our natural human tendency to have our lives revolve around ourselves. So that we come into church and we begin as we did with that wonderful piece from, uh, from Bach. Who did all that he did only to the glory of God. But really we turn it around so quickly. And simply want to come in and have God be what we want him to be. I want us to be on our guard so that when we come to this place. What we will want to do is open up this word. And say father. I don't know you well yet. Teach me. Which brings me to the thing I want us to pursue. I want us as a church to be a a people who pursue with a longing the knowledge of God. It it makes it easy for me to preach if you will do that. You know, I've been a long time preacher and I've been in so many different places. And sometimes at the end of my sermon, I'm just worn out. I'm just worn out because I just feel like I've got to keep entertaining people somehow. But there are other times when I just know that people have come and I just sense it, a deep longing to hear whatever God has to say. And one of the stories that I love is in Exodus 33 and 34. I would love you to mark it down and just read it. Because this is Moses. He had been walking with God for a long time. And he came to a point. I wrote it down. This is what he said. God, you have turned to me and said, Moses, I know your name. And I want you to know you found favor with me. But God, I need you to teach me your ways. I want you to teach me who you are. Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, Moses, I will do it. With that longing, I will declare my name in your presence. Do you see what's happening? It's just such a wonderful down-to-earth thing. Moses, I've been doing all these difficult things out here with these people in the wilderness. And you, you say you know my name, but I don't know your name. I really don't know who you are. I don't know what you're like, as so many of us may feel, even though we've been to church so often. Father, teach me your name. And I love it. He says, here's what you need to do, Moses. Exodus 34. Go and kind of hide back in a rock because I don't want you to be blown away by my majesty and greatness. And while he is there, the Lord passes in front of him and declares his name. This beautiful statement that's repeated throughout Scripture. He says, the Lord, Jehovah, compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, not leaving the guilty unpunished, but forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. My prayer is that every week when we gather in this place, that longing of Moses to know God might become ever deeper our longing again these makers instructions were given to us so that it would go so that it would go well with us God gave his command so that you and I can live 
And he says, if you really want to live, don't put other gods in my place. But if you really want to live, come to know me as I declare that I am. And believe me, God as he is, is greater than any kind of God you and I could imagine him to be. Believe me, God as he is, is better than any kind of God that we would want to imagine him to be, that he hasn't revealed him to be. For us to live well, we need to keep growing in our knowledge of God, and we must worship God as he is, to his glory. Amen. This... This morning, what I would like us to do at the end of this service, Dwayne, would you be willing to come to the piano? Um, I would like Dwayne to be playing some soft music. Uh, I've taken just a few of the statements from God's word about who God is. And they will be showing on the screen behind us. Uh, you can either engage in prayer or you might watch them and simply meditate and reflect. Ask God to take these statements about himself and teach you. Reshape you, help you to come to know him in ways perhaps that you have not known him before. I pray that God's spirit might use this word to teach us truth about the greatness and the beauty of our God.